It's the time of the year when if you've got Jewish friends, they'll be very frenetic about getting ready for the Passover. And um, it's something which takes pride of place in the, the calendar of a Jewish person. And it involves an awful lot of preparation. But many of us who are of the Christian persuasion will wonder what this has got to do with us. So what I'd like to do tonight is run through the Passover and the great importance that the Passover has to you and to me. And we, we need to consider a couple of things. So the first real question is we need to understand is what is the Passover and what does the Passover mean? Then we need to think a little bit about what's all this about the Egyptians and blood and Israelites and what does it all have to do with the Passover? You know, there's so many pieces of information that a person has but maybe doesn't put them all together. So we'd like to consider some of those key aspects. And then we'd also, of course, like to understand what the importance of this is for us today. It's all well and good having something that took place uh, many years ago, but what's the importance in our lives today? And then we need to ask ourselves the question, does it really matter? You know, is a Jewish traditional ceremony something very important for us today if we are deciding that we want to follow Christ? So to try and understand this a little bit better, what we need to do is to go back in the mists of time. And we need to go back in the mists of time almost three and a half thousand years into the past. We need to go back in the mists of time to a kingdom that existed many, many years before that, many centuries before that, and was dominant in world affairs. And of course, it's the, the kingdom of the Egyptians. And the Egyptian dynasties that had ruled for many centuries before that were really the source and the power of what we're going to consider today. Because as we know from scripture and elsewhere, the pharaohs and their dynasties were incredibly powerful people. These were autocrats who were believers that they were gods themselves. They believed that when they left this current existence, they were sent off on a portal up into the stars. And the pyramids were designed to ease their passage. They were aligned to the stars so that at just the right point, their passage of their soul could take them all the way up to their place in the stars. These were men who walked like gods on the earth. And this is the nature of the religion, the nature of the kingdom, the power that was Egypt. It was an incredibly forbidding and powerful uh, kingdom. In fact, it's so powerful that God said the following in Exodus 9. He said, indeed, for this purpose, I, God, have raised you up, that's Pharaoh, for a single purpose, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, it's really interesting, because now you've got the God of heaven being set up against this man who believes he is a God, just waiting for his time to go to heaven. And God said, I'm going to set you up to such an extent that my name will be declared as the God of all the earth. Because you, your kingdom is so powerful and has so much influence 
that when people hear about me, the nations round about are going to tremble. And the reach of Egypt was great. I mean, the grain ships that used to leave out of the Alexandrian harbor have been found all around the ports of the Mediterranean, sunken uh, vessels. The amphoras that used to carry wine and produce have also been found all over the harbors of Europe. The linen and the cotton and the produce of Egypt is renowned for its export. In fact, if any of you buy good linen, they'll say it's Egyptian linen, even to this day. And that was the power of Egypt. It was an intimidating, foreboding place. It was a place that was incredibly sophisticated. A place with incredible earthworks, incredible building plans, incredible monuments to to humanity and the power of the pharaohs, each trying to ensure that his dynasty was remembered as the dynasty that was greater than all others. It was an intimidating and foreboding place. It was a place designed to have the right hierarchy between people and the rulers. It was a place that was built on the backs of imported servants and slaves who put their backs into building all the great civil works of Egypt. And of course we know that there was a man called Moses, a man who was part of the indentured tribes, the Israelites, who were saved from the river and became a prince of Egypt. And Moses was adopted as a prince in Egypt. But his people, the Israelites, were under hard bondage in the land of Egypt. They were the ones who had to make bricks. They were the ones who had to toil in the hot sun, building day and night all of these great civil works of Egypt. And if you were an Israelite, you may have thought that your position was totally and utterly hopeless. You may have thought that, what could I do against this might of Egypt? I'm sitting here just as a little laborer making bricks. How can I escape the power of this incredible kingdom, the kingdom of the Egyptians? Well, God had something to do with it, because God would intervene in the lives of the Israelites. And God was going to intervene in an incredible way. And the intervention we can read in Exodus 6, verses 6 to 9. And this is what Moses was told to say. Moses, says God, Say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And when you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's the title of God, Yahweh. He's not like the gods of the Egyptians. He is a God who is revealing himself. He's not interpreted. He is saying, this is what I'm like. I am Yahweh. And what is the first, what is the first thing that God says to these people? He says, I'm going to tell you, I will bring you out. There's an exodus from Egypt absolutely awaiting you. It's a wonderful hope. It's a hope of Israel, isn't it? It's a hope of Israel to get out of Egypt because the Israelites were in bondage there. I'm going to get you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. 
and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Yahweh. Do you notice the the words in red there? They are the words where God is saying of an absolute certainty, he will do something. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as a people. I will be your God. And not only am I taking you out, I'm taking you in. And I'm going to give you the land as an everlasting heritage. You see, and the the certainty of that is that last phrase. You can be sure of all of these things because I am Yahweh. There is no God in Egypt like me. So the cry, of course, to Pharaoh was to let my people go. These are God's people. They are not your people, Egypt. Let my people go. So Moses would have come in before Pharaoh. And just to excuse the poetic license, Moses would have been an 80-year-old man, not somebody looking in their mid-30s. But Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. They had to leave from east of the Nile, the, the area called Goshen where they lived, And God said, they're going to leave your territory and go into the wilderness to serve me, not you. Their primary allegiance is to me, the God of heaven. Let my people go. Well, the response of Pharaoh was quite telling. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? I don't know this God, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. And a stubborn refusal started to form the pattern of what was going to come with Pharaoh. So God had to put pressure on Israel and on Egypt. And I say that cautiously because the first three plagues actually were suffered equally by Israel and by Egypt. God had to first test Israel to see whether they were truly his and worth saving. And if they followed him... The rest of the ten plagues only came upon the Egyptians. So God sent the ten plagues. And the ten plagues, as any Sunday school student will tell you, with great glee, were that the water was turned into blood, that there were frogs croaking all over Egypt, that the lice would have infested everybody and stopped the high priests of their religion officiating that the flies which bred on all of the decaying matter and the blood would have swarmed all over Egypt and that the cattle would have become diseased. And you would have thought that Pharaoh would have recanted. He thought about it, but not very long. So God had to keep up the pressure. And God kept up the pressure. 
He sent most, the most agonizing boils to infect people across the country. A most terrible hailstorm and locusts that devastated the crops. And remember, Egypt was often the breadbasket of the world. Now they were dependent on others for food. God was humbling Egypt and taking all of these things which they either depended on or worshipped as deities, and he showed who was the true God in all the earth. And then, of course, the ninth plague was that of darkness. And despite Pharaoh seeing his kingdom being brought to its knees, he still didn't recant. Despite seeing the locusts devastate his crops, he still wouldn't relent. And Pharaoh hardened his heart once again. Incredible. Because this was an incredibly powerful man. It was a man who was not used to not getting his way. So a tenth plague had to come. And the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. With absolute certainty, God says, this time Pharaoh is not going to turn around and change his mind. This last plague, this most terrible plague of all, will force his hand. So Pharaoh was set thinking, is he going to capitulate? Or is he not? And Pharaoh hardened his heart for the tenth and last time. So the tenth plague was set in motion. The tenth plague is described for us in Exodus 11 and in Exodus 12 was that of the death of the firstborn. God had said, you've got a choice, a very stark choice. You remain like the Egyptians and the firstborn of every family, man, woman, and beast, will die. Or you keep the Passover and live. You couldn't be half Egyptian and half Israelite. You couldn't decide you were going to change the terms. God set a very stark choice in place. You live or you die. You follow me or you follow your own ways and the consequences thereof. And Pharaoh had to hear those words and still think what it meant to him as he looked after his own family and his firstborn. So what happened to those who would keep the Passover, those who would escape this terrible tenth and last plague? Well, keeping the Passover is presented for us in Exodus 12, verses 1 to 27. And I'll just pick up the salient points for you. Because keeping the Passover was something that the Jews had to do. And there were eight steps in keeping the Passover. The very first step was that on the month Abib, which was to be counted as the first of months, it was to be the beginning of their cycle, on the tenth day of that month, they had to go and carefully select one little lamb. The lamb had to be just right, just perfect. That lamb had to be inspected from top to toe and then kept at the side of your house, penned up like a little pet that you would watch and care for and nurture for four days. 
and you would be very careful that nothing came between that little lamb and its destiny. And its destiny on the 14th day at evening, from the ninth hour of the day onwards, that's about 3 to 6 p.m. in our reckoning, was that the lamb had to meet its fate. It had to be killed and it had to be have its blood caught in a basin. And that blood had to be kept. Imagine that, watching that dear little lamb that you loved. And you saw at the side of your house and your children were talking about. And it had to be slaughtered on the 14th day as the evening was approaching. Then you had to take that lamb's blood and take some hyssop, which was like a stiff uh, brush. It was like a, a weed that grew. And the hyssop, which was often on the walls of buildings, you would take and put into a, a bunch, and you would dip it in the lamb's blood. And then you had to take it and sprinkle it upon the lintel and the doorposts of the house. You had to mark your house. You had to make a choice. Are you going to follow God and his Passover, or are you going to ignore it and be like the Egyptians? There was no half-dipping. There was no little bits of blood and maybe an Egyptian token. You were either on God's side or on the Egyptian side. The fourth step was that they were to roast the lamb whole. They were not allowed to cut into pieces. They had to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread to remind them of the bitterness of the sufferings that they had in Egypt. And importantly, not a, lamb, a bone of that lamb was to be broken. In fact, that's a modern Passover plate that Jews still eat to this day with the single bone of the lamb and the bitter herbs in remembrance. They had to stay inside, step five, all night. They weren't allowed to go and do their own thing. They had to remain under God's protection and stay indoors all night. And this is an interesting one, step six. No stranger was allowed to participate unless he or she had completely joined themselves with the Israelites. In other words, you couldn't have an Egyptian who'd say, let me just stay in your house, but I'm going to stay in Egyptian. You had to choose to follow the Israelite way, lock, stock, and barrel. It was one way or the other. And if you did, there was hope. There was salvation. There was an, uh, God's outreached hand of, of salvation. And you know what? Many people took them up on that offer. Because when we know that when the Jews left Egypt, they left as 600,000 men, besides the women and the children, and the mixed multitude. The mixed multitude refers to the people who are from other nations who joined themselves to Israel. People took themselves up on that offer, but they had to comply again with God's message of salvation. You had to follow his way. The seventh step was that none of the Passover lamb was to be left till the morning. If there was anything that you couldn't eat, it had to be burnt. No bit to remain until the morning. You were to be ready to leave. Nothing to be kept for the next day. And when they ate, they had to eat really quickly. 
Because when they ate, they had to have their shoes, their walking shoes on their feet, with their staff in their hand, and the other hand dipping in the dish and eating. Because they had to be ready at a moment's notice for when the message from Moses came. Leave the land of Egypt. So what about this concept of Passover or passing over? Well, God sent an angel with a particular message and a particular mission. And that mission was to check whether some should be kept alive or some should die, based on the principles we've just talked about. So it's not some macabre angel of death as is portrayed in Gothic novels. This was an angel who had a mission from God to uphold God's principles. To the Israelites, the message was from Exodus 12, verse 13, that when the angel would see the blood, the angel would pass over the house of the Israelite. Hence the word pass over. It wasn't saying that the people inside it were perfect. It was saying that they were covered by what the angel saw on the outside of the house so that the angel would pass over and they wouldn't die. But the Egyptians wouldn't have marked their houses, so when the angel inspected them, God's law was put into action and the tenth plague took its force. So what happened next in Egypt? Well, we know what happened next. The angel of God went and inspected the houses of the Egyptians and found no blood on the lintels and the doorposts. And the end result of it was absolutely tragic. From the house of Pharaoh, where the firstborn lay dead in his arms, and all the people around were crying, for their families had also lost the firstborn, down to the commoners of Egypt, who were shattered as their families were torn apart. They had crossed God one too many times. And Egypt lay broken, broken by God for disobedience and hard-heartedness. So began the coming out, the leaving, the exodus from Egypt. As the Jews left that dusty and inhospitable place, the land of Goshen, when their Egyptian neighbors gave them goods to get them out, took off gold and jewelry and willingly gave it to them and said, get out, we can't have you near us. We can't suffer like this one more time. As they were to embark on their journey from the land of Goshen on the east of the Nile, through the wilderness and into Israel. So the people began their exodus. They began leaving Egypt and making their way. And the way led them towards that incredibly impassable barrier, which was the Red Sea. And the Reds, at the Red Sea they halted, for they had no way across. And concurrently with that, Pharaoh decided, I can't lose this workforce. I can't be beaten by them. Despite all the loss that we have suffered as Egyptians, I'm coming after them. And he sent his best force, his best charioteers, his best 
armed men to chase after the Israelites. And God, seeing their plight, asked Moses to open up the sea. And Moses prayed to God, and the sea was opened before them, and a path through it was made, where they, were walk, where they walked through on dry land to the other side, and together were constituted as a nation. They left as individuals, and going through that water, they came out and were constituted as a nation under Moses. They were now the passers over, the ones who had moved through to the other side. And the Egyptians tried to follow them. And God caused that wall of water to collapse upon them. So that not one of them was left. All the horses and all the charioteers and all those mighty men were drowned. If history is correct, and Tutmosa III was the pharaoh of the Exodus, he wasn't actually present at that time. His army certainly was. But it seems that there's a break in history, and if Tutmosa truly is the third, is the pharaoh of the Exodus, and we can't be 100% sure, you see a marked decline in the dynasty of Tutmosa III immediately after these events, in terms of succession, in terms of the wealth and the power and the influence of the Egyptians. It was never the same after that time. At the other side of the sea, of course, the Israelites came through and they walked on their journey towards the promised land. They'd come out of Egypt, but coming out's not good enough. You've got to go in. They were to go into the land. They had to go in. This was the place that God had promised them to, the, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fathers. So what does all of the story of the Passover mean to you and to me? It's a great story. It's an incredible story. And movie makers make great movies of it. But what does the story mean to you and to me? Well, we are told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He makes a statement there and he uses the word Christ. Now, there are titles of the Lord Jesus, one of which is the Christ, the Anointed. The Anointed means the Chosen One. Christ was chosen to be our Passover, just as those little lambs were chosen and selected to be the Passover. Christ was selected to be the Passover, to be sacrificed for us. Paul takes it right from the Old Testament and makes it slap-bang important to you and me and our walk before our God. He makes it pivotal in our faith. The Passover is what Christ did for you and for me. And lest we should think it's one verse in isolation, we know from Revelation 13 that it speaks of Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Not that Christ existed before the world existed, but God knew that Christ would be needed for the problems of this world. And that the destiny of the Christ was to be a slain lamb. And Christ knew it. Every single day he walked upon this earth, he knew he was to be the slain lamb. The lamb called from the foundation of the earth. In fact, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, he opened his mouth to the people around about him and he said, Look who's coming. It's the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sin of the world. But you see, the Jews had to, under their normal way of sin offering, had to offer sacrifices again and again and again, ritually. And it never got rid of the problem of sin. John is saying, here is the lamb that will take away all the sins of the world. So Christ was offered, as Paul says in Hebrews, once to bear the sins of many. Christ had to be offered, which means he had to be sacrificed to carry our burdens. So Christ has become our Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that lamb looks at us and we look into the eyes of that lamb, we see the attributes that were necessary in the Lord Jesus Christ. He too had to be spotless and perfect and obedient. And he was inspected like that. And if we have a look at a couple of events relating to the Lord Jesus Christ's last days, we see that he fulfilled all the conditions of the Passover lamb. On the tenth day of the first month of the Jewish year, Abib, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. For the next four days, as we know had to happen to that little lamb, Jesus was penned up in Jerusalem. He never left Jerusalem. He was teaching in the temple all day and retiring each night to the Mount of Olives. The Lord Jesus Christ was the lamb in preparation. During these four days, the Lord Jesus Christ was inspected by the leaders of the people. He was shown to be without fault and blemish. They looked at him intensely to see whether he was the right lamb, and they couldn't find a fault in him. Neither could Pilate. I find no fault in this man. He was inspected and flawless. On the fourteenth day, at about the ninth hour, the Lord Jesus Christ too was slain. He knew the bitterness of suffering, the bitter herbs. Yet he himself was without the leaven of wickedness which unrisen bread represents. He was pure of heart and sinless. And the last point, as the blood on the doorpost brought salvation to the Hebrews, so personal redemption is brought through the sprinkled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all those things, Christ is the true Passover. There is none like him. He is the Lamb of God. But not only is Christ the Passover, but Jesus is the Passover. Now why do I say that? You see, you can select a lamb for a purpose. And the lamb has no knowledge. Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was going through. And Jesus, as Yahshua, the name implies, Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves, willingly performed the act of Passover himself. In fact, he had to take it to another level when he said in Mark 14, 
As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. He was a man spent and given in the service of his God and those whom he came to save. He was no mere dumb lamb, unable to escape his destiny. He did these things for you and for me. He took the cup when he had supped and given thanks and gave it to them. And they all drank from it and he said to them, This is my blood of a new covenant which is shed for many. So the Lord Jesus Christ was saying there was something new. Something greater than just the Passover in his supper, which was so different. His supper was a, new const- a newly constituted covenant in which there was coverage for sin once and for all through his blood. And lest we think this was some easy thing, the Lord Jesus Christ personally went through all the rigors of this knowing what the Lamb had to suffer. Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Not one moment of self-appointed glory, not one moment of complaint, not one moment of backbiting, nothing. He was a silent and willing lamb. Isaiah says he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, not pulling, not doing anything of his own. He walked to his death. Isaiah said, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, lest we think he didn't suffer. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. The Lamb sent to save them was despised by them and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what Christ did because he was Jesus, Yahshua the Saviour. So in conclusion then, what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, for you and for me, is incredible. Not only was he handpicked by God to be the Lamb, but he voluntarily went through with it. He gave himself for us. This was not some dumb Lamb that just ended up in his destiny. This was a Jesus who willingly loved us to the end. Now, last reference. Have a look at this, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none of us who is right, none of us who is perfect in our ways, just some of us who can be covered. We are justified freely by his grace, the grace of God, only through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Being justified means that you're not just, but you're viewed as just. 
because of the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you've just got to look at these words. It says, whom God set forth. And the Greek literally means to be placed in front of as a propitiation by his blood. Now being set forth means to make it boldly seen like you paint the doorposts and the lintels. Christ was pushed forward to be plainly seen that through his blood and through faith he could demonstrate to his righteousness, God's righteousness. Because in his forbearance, look at these words, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Isn't that beautiful? There is God because Christ is on the doorposts and lintels of our hearts if we are baptized into him, that he can justify us by passing over our iniquities because of Jesus Christ the Lord. And the sins that were previously committed are now passed over to demonstrate at the present time God's righteousness. That was the whole issue with Pharaoh, wasn't it? Who's righteous? That he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So once again, we see that God was bringing his chosen one, and his chosen one brought salvation back to God. Isn't that a wonderful principle? How God and Christ together work to bring salvation to you and to me. So what we have then is a choice. A choice that's exactly the same as the Egyptians. You could choose to remain in the darkness of Egypt, in the bondage to all of that, those religions, those fallacious ways of thinking, bondage to slavery, bondage to darkness and death, or you can decide to do something different. There's only two choices. The other choice is, in the words of Moses, that God told him to say, that Christ is saying to each and every one of us, and to saying to the sin and death which rules over our lives, let my people go, says Christ. And if we respond to God in this way, Christ is saying to sin and death in our lives, let my people, people in Christ, let them go. And we are freed from the darkness of sin and death and the Egyptian world in which we live. Are we going to be freed in Christ? Because what we do know is that all the things that God said he would do Christ has done, and God has done. I will bring you out from this world. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And I'll make you my people. All of the things that were done to Israel are exactly what Christ has done for us in redeeming us from the bondage of this world and the darkness of spiritual Egypt, which is this age to be brought out, rescued, redeemed, and made as a people. And I will be your God. I'll bring you into the promised land. I'll give you heritage. 
And the absolute guarantee is that there is a God in heaven, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, and he underwrites it with his power, the power that overthrew the most powerful kingdom on the earth. I am Yahweh, is our guarantee. So for you and me, the choice is absolutely stark, and the choice is now, in Egypt or in God. You and I make that answer in our lives every day. And if you're not baptized into Christ, you do need to think about these things seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.